Thank you. Share everything Thank you for about that, that introduction. Thank you. I love your I love your pastors. I love this church. Um, I love that I got to come here last year and that you've had me back. So that's a good sign that I, I didn't offend anyone too deeply. Um, my claim to fame around here is that I was best friends with Ryan. Lots of people were best friends with Ryan, so don't get too angry at me, Matt. <laughs> he was that kind of person, Ryan Harder. Um, and, and so this church has a, has a deep place in my heart, uh, both because of those reasons and because of many friends I have here and because of its connection with our church. And um, So it's a pleasure to be here. I can't, I can't say everything about the kingdom because that is one of the biggest themes in all of scripture, um, one of the most all-consuming themes, and it's uh, one that Jesus talked the most about, perhaps, is the kingdom of God. And so I just have this humble task of defining it, and, uh, and so not even sharing everything about it, just defining it, but because it's such a big theme, there's been a lot of different opinions about it. And I'm more than likely to cross some boundary about what someone thinks about something, and so you'll just have to have mercy on, on me and forgive me in your devotions, and uh, hopefully I won't do that. Um, but um, to, to cut to the chase, what I want to do is... Uh, on the front end, defined the kingdom, define it, and put it in its place in terms of God's grand scheme of things, and then really get to um, really what I want to talk about, and that is the fact that the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. It is, it is born by the Spirit. It is empowered by the Spirit. Its domain is in the Spirit. Um, it affects a lot of things. It affects culture. It affects society. It affects our own personal lives on a deeper level, but its effects aren't it. It is something beyond those things. And I think that's very important to get, uh, get into place. And so let's just jump right in with the defining part of stuff. That already sounds boring. Let's define things. Um, but I don't think it's boring because I'm the one preaching. And so I think it's exciting. <laughs> um, I think we could, do a lot, uh, we could do a lot of good by just kind of swapping out the word kingdom whenever you find it in the Bible. He's, He's already changing scripture on us. <laughs> no, no. Um, for the word reign, the reign of God. If every time you saw the word kingdom of God, you swapped it out in your mind, and some of your translations will do this for you, the reign of God. Not the rain. We're like, we don't need more rain. We're in like the Portland, Vancouver area. We don't need more rain. Uh, no, R-E-I-G-N, the reign of God, the dominion of God. Um, then I think that will help us. Because when we think of the word kingdom, we think in English terms, the word kingdom in English means the king's dom domain, the kingdom, the domain of the king. And automatically, what's associated with that word is a territory. It's, um, it's territorial. It's a spatial term. And the emphasis in the New Testament and throughout the Bible is not the kingdom, but the kingdom. The king defines it. Whatever the king is, that's what the essence of the kingdom is. And it's not his domain in terms of a territory, although it affects territory, and one day it will consume a whole refurbished earth and everything in it and everything in the world. But instead of thinking of it as the king's domain, I want you to think about it as the king's reign, his dominion. And all of a sudden that changes the flavor of it. It means that the kingdom is here whenever people are submitted to God. 
Whenever they submit to the reign, his authority of God, his dominion, that's what the kingdom of God is. I want to share a definition that I give to my doctrine of the church students. I just gave it to them last week. This is from George Eldon Ladd, who's one of the key people you would go to uh, on this subject. And this is his definition of the kingdom that I've just slightly modified. Um, it's the, so- <laughs> you know, because who am I to modify G.E. Ladd? He was a good lad, but... Uh, I modified it to make it simpler and to to cut out some fat in it. The fat was good. I liked the fat. It just, my students needed to memorize it for the test, okay? So the sovereign rule of God, this is the definition, the sovereign rule of God manifested in Christ to defeat his enemies, creating a people over whom he reigns, and a realm in which the power of his reign is experienced, okay? So the sovereign rule of God manifested in Christ to defeat his enemies, creating a people over whom he reigns, and that's what I like about this definition, and issuing in a a realm in which the power of his reign is experienced. Let's break down some of those ideas. I like this definition because it focuses on the rule of God. We're not looking at the kingdom as some sort of concept. Because, I mean, have you noticed it in Christianese culture, like you can slap the kingdom as an adjective on front of anything and it automatically makes it like a worthwhile endeavor. You know, like kingdom economics, kingdom politics, um, kingdom vacation, um, kingdom, I mean, like you put kingdom on anything and, and I'm all for just always living, you know, in the kingdom, but it can kind of dilute the potency of the word if you let us, if you let ourselves, if we let ourselves get away with that. So I wanna, I like this definition because it is the sovereign rule of God. The real question is, am I submitted to the rule of the king? It's, it's, not, it's not the side effects of his dominion, but his actual dominion. I like the side effects of his reigning in my life, but the side effects are not the kingdom. The kingdom is his actual reign in my life. Number two, I like this because it, it implies that the kingdom contains a power that is to be experienced. He said, it's the sovereign rule of God manifested in Christ and issuing in a realm in which the power of his reign is experienced. Like, it shouldn't be just some conceptual thing. It's my submission to his rule, but that issues in a power. Like, there's power that comes from him. I, I should see and I should, I should be able to experience God's power when I'm submitted to him. And I especially like this definition because he says, it's the sovereign rule of God manifested in Christ meaning ultimately Christ is the ruler, Jesus is the ruler of the kingdom, creating a people over whom he reigns. God's kingdom is concerned with a community. And I think there's too many people in the West who see the kingdom of God that can be something intensely personal and individual. And they say, I'm a kingdom person, but I'm not a church person. I'm a kingdom person because I'm all about all these kingdomy things. What are kingdomy things? I don't know. Whatever I slap the adjective kingdom onto gets to be a kingdom thing. You know, like, uh, and, but they have no connection to the body of Christ. People of whom the apostle Paul says, it's like they're a hand or a finger or a member of the body of Christ that want to be directly attached to the head. But God has ordained that they should get their life from the head through the other members of the body that they're connected to. And in cutting themselves off from the body of believers, they're cutting themselves off from the head. God's kingdom has an order to it, and God's kingdom has a community to it. The king has a community. He has a bunch of people who are allegiant to him. And I, I just love that. We have, to, we have to point that out. 
Jesus says, I will build my church and I give my church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever the church binds on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever the church looses on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The kingdom has a community, and I'm preaching to the community, so no one needs to convince to be in the community because you've, you've, you've trudged through the dangerous, deadly snowfall to get here to the community on a Sunday morning. So I'm preaching to the choir, I know, but it's good to remind ourselves of um, Stories we tell ourselves about the community. So that's a, that's a good way to define the, the, the uh, kingdom, uh, the reign of God. Uh, but I want to narrate for us some different ways people have talked about the kingdom of God and thought about the kingdom of God. And I'll just give a brief historical overview. Um, number one, beginning in just, just the era right after the apostles, in the early church fathers, two, three, four hundred A.D., if you read their writings, and I, I read in Burkhoff's theology what I'm about to say to you, and I decided last night I'd just go read their writings. I searched for every occurrence of kingdom in Irenaeus and, and Justin Martyr and different ones. And what he says is true. They believed that the kingdom was primarily a future thing. Almost every reference in those early church fathers to the kingdom is, is not something so much that's here now, but is something that will come one day when Jesus returns. So the kingdom is something we're waiting for. Um, it would suddenly arrive at the return of Jesus. And um, it seems to me that that's a little deviant from what I read in the New Testament. It mostly lines up with the New Testament. Almost all of the references to the coming of God's kingdom in the New Testament are, in fact, future. But there's a good number of them that talk about, and we're singing it, let your kingdom come today. You know, the kingdom of God has arrived I think they were living in an era of great persecution, and it was hard to imagine a kingdom, that the kingdom of God was a reality that would come to earth before Jesus came back and fixed everything. And I think they probably were misunderstood when they talked about the kingdom. It was perhaps seen as some, something rebellious against the big Roman Empire. So they always just wanted to make it spiritual and future only, kind of as a, a way to spread the faith and to say, no, we're not insurrectionists. And probably because they had a hard time seeing the kingdom of God being a present reality when clearly things are so bad, they're cutting our heads off. And um, so Jesus is going to have to come and fix it. Um, there's certainly truth in this model. It is true that whatever we experience of God's reign in our lives today is not the fullness of what we're supposed to experience. It is, we're told, a down payment. It is guaranteeing the fullness that will come. And if you think that the kingdom is only something future, then you will kind of end up with an escapist mentality. Yeah. There's nothing that I have to do right now to seek the arrival of God's kingdom in my life, in my family, in my church, in my city, in my nation, because the kingdom of God isn't here now. The reign of God hasn't begun. I, I can just sit here and twiddle my thumbs and think about heaven, and everything will be wonderful. Um, to be fair, historically, it's people that had this view that are actually more likely to evangelize. I don't know why. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. No, hope 
is not escapism. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Actually, there is something about thinking of the coming, like a future day when God's kingdom will just completely arrive in fullness and totally infiltrate our reality in an instant. That is kind of motivating us. We, those who have their heads highest in the clouds, if the clouds are really centered in heaven and God's reality, then those people actually do a lot. Um, this shifted, though, in the medieval era. The church became, the, the Christianity became the official religion. And we were kind of in a place of authority and influence as Christians, as the church. And it came to be seen that the government should function as the tool of the church to enforce God's law and to enforce his morality. Um, so it became to be seen that the, the kingdom of God was about synonymous with the Roman Catholic Church. So that the church's role should be to influence government and society and culture so that all of these things are mere mechanisms for the church to sort of reign. And if you're connected to the church, and it has to be the right church, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, then you are in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was seen as something almost completely present. The futuristic aspect was sort of lost. We're not hoping for the arrival of God's kingdom. We're not, and, and in fact, we're using the structures of this world and kind of forcing them into submission. Um, do, you th do, do we think that politics will bring about the reign of God on earth? That's kind of what they were committing to, especially if you can control politics. Uh, you don't need to be a Catholic to have fallen into that trap. It wasn't very long ago in the 80s when we had the moral majority and Republican is practically synonymous with Christian. And when we have that authority, we use it not only to govern righteously, which is we should do, but to sort of see government structures and societal structures as mechanisms that if we could just get our hands on, we could extend the reign of God, the kingdom of God, through those mechanisms. If we could just take over education, and business, and entertainment, and politics, then we could bring about God's reign on the earth. What's the problem with that? The problem is, it's lost the plot of what the kingdom is altogether. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, and his reign is over hearts and lives who have submitted to him, who have repented, who have converted. And no amount of moral legislation, and I'm for moral legislation more than I am for immoral legislation. I'm not saying we should be totally absent from this. I'm just saying we need to let go of the really wrong-headed idea that if we just got enough people with R's or D's in front of their names, pick your poison, then God's kingdom will arrive. We've lost the plot. Should we be involved? Y yes. We should care about our world. But let me submit to you, we should not care about our world because we are bringing the kingdom about by dominating these spheres. If we could just get more Christians in entertainment. I don't like Christian entertainment. There, I said it. I said it. I, I do like The Chosen. It took a long time for me to watch it because I just could not believe it would be good. Couldn't believe it. I hate... I, I, I do want people to like me, so I'll just stop there. <laughs>
So, I, I, don't, I don't think that's how we're going to bring the kingdom to bear. <laughs> Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is, not, is from another place. And then we moved in the, late, like the mid to late 1800s to a social view of the kingdom. After the Enlightenment, people began, Christian, so-called Christians, began doing away with this notion of the supernatural. We read the Bible. I say we, but I'm most certainly not in this group of people. Number one, I'm far too young. This was the 1800s. Number two, I don't identify with them. But they would read the Bible and they would say, well, well, we know that supernatural things don't happen. Jesus wasn't really God. Uh, He was a godly man, I'm sure. And Jesus was crucified probably, but he didn't rise again. People don't rise again. All the miracles he did didn't really happen. Um, Those are just... Those are mythological things that modern people just are too smart to believe. But we want to maintain the title Christian, so I don't know, we can feel better about ourselves. And so what we're going to say is those are all mythological shells, like a peanut shell or or a sesame seed, not a sesame seed, a, um, what are the things you chew? (laughs) Sunflower seeds, yeah, sunflower seed. You can remove the husk. And, and get to the real kernel. So the husk of Jesus being God and rising from the dead and the miracles and demons being cast out and all that stuff and, uh, and a heart being born again of the spirit, that can be, you can shed that. But what you need to keep is the kernel. Well, what's the kernel, pray tell smart people from the 1800s? Well, whatever we like the best gets to be the kernel. The kernel is the ethical teachings of Jesus. What you really have to take away from Jesus is the fact that he said to love your neighbor as yourself and to care for the poor and the needy and to and to be and to fight injustice and, and to be and to stand for justice. And, and this idea began to, to take root that, that you could have the message and the morals without the miraculous. You could have the message of the kingdom and the morals of the kingdom without the miraculous. I just took my small group, my wife actually is the primary leader of that small group, but we took our small group through the Sermon on the Mount. Has anyone read the Sermon on the Mount? The, the prayer that we're praying comes from the middle of that. That is the most difficult pas- passage in Scripture I've ever read. It's far more difficult than anything in the Law of Moses. Jesus has a very rigorous standard of righteousness. I mean, it's difficult stuff. Now, and I don't want to approach that without the supernatural, without a Holy Spirit causing me to be born again and empowering me to live in righteousness and to thank God give me mercy along the way because I have never yet been able to live up to the standard of the kingdom on the mount. But what's the problem? People don't need salvation, they said. They need enlightenment. They need education. They need access to things that they don't have access to. In this view, the kingdom of God is reduced to society that values the ethical teachings of Jesus to love our neighbor and ourselves. It will come through social work and reformation. This ideal came crashing down with the world wars. Whatever progress we thought we were making, we realized humanity is not really getting better. But it has resurrected, it has been germinating under the surface in academia for decades, and it is resurrected in full power and force today. Do you recognize it as I'm talking about this? I have a whole generation of young Christians who want to do the same thing as these people. Reduce the kingdom of God to social action, to standing against social injustices. 
whether real or perceived. And there are real ones and there are merely perceived ones. Standing against poverty. Is that, now are these good things? Yeah. Will a heart transformed by the kingdom of God, the reign of God, have compassion on people that are suffering? Yes. Yes. But this is the trick. This is is a sneaky trick of the devil, I think. To swap out the effects for the thing itself is dangerous. What they're saying is the kingdom of God is just the effects of the kingdom of God. When I surrender my heart to the reign of God, which is what I'm saying the kingdom is, that will produce, and if enough people do it, an influence in society that is a positive net effect. But do you find in scripture that the mission of the church is to make the world a better place? Are we called to to pray for our society, to do good deeds among our brothers, to do everything we can to to love and support another? Is the overarching mission to to make this world a better place and to, um, if it is, then the church fails. Because it's really hard and I have tried. And if your official teaching of this church is different, then disregard what I'm saying and ask your pastors about it later. It's really hard to read the Bible and come to this notion that the church is going to Christianize the world and that the world is just going to get better and that the church is just going to take everything over. Like I see in the last days, the world getting darker and the church getting brighter. And that's what people have a hard time with. They bought into the lie that I have to choose between the biblical teaching of an increasingly endarkened world and an increasingly vibrant, victorious church. If the Bible teaches me both, and as hard as I've tried to wriggle out of it, I find myself that it does, then I guess I'm just supposed to hang in that tension. I guess it means, though, that I don't get to define the win by whatever I want it to be. If I want a world-centric win... We're going to fix the world. Often that's motivated by my pride of wanting to be a part of something that just enforces God's reign over everyone. Jesus apparently doesn't think that that's his mission. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to build my church. Uh, why, don't, why don't we do a little Bible study at this juncture? Why don't you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13? Jesus teaches multiple parables about what the kingdom is. He says, uh, in verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares, or weeds that look a little bit like wheat among the wheat, and the enemy went away. So this sneaky enemy, (laughs) I'm going to put a bunch of weeds in this guy's wheat field. He was gluten intolerant and he was bitter. (laughs) But when the weeds sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he says to them, no. For while you are gathering up the tares, you might inadvertently uproot some of the wheat. Allow both to grow, both the wheat and the weeds, to grow into their harvest. 
And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into the barn. Now, this is one of the few parables, if you go down to verse 36, that Jesus actually explains. Usually, his disciples are like, uh, what did that mean? And he's like, ah, oh, you a little faith, you know, and then he doesn't tell them. And I'm like, oh, I wish he would have told them. I mean, not that I needed to know, but, you know, I just... For some people, it might make it clearer. Um, but, but he says, here's what it is. He says, the field is the church. And in the church, there's always going to be true believers and false believers. Are you reading your Bible along with me? Because have you caught my error? I'm lying to you, to, just to see, you know. He says, the field is the world. Jesus isn't preaching a compromised church. Saying the field is the world. God sows, God sows his church into the world, the wheat, to grow up into a harvest. And the enemy sows weeds into the world to grow up a harvest of unrighteousness. And do the weeds just overtake the wheat overtake the weeds? So that the church just overpowers everyone, and then we wrap up the kingdom and say, Jesus, you can come back now. We've done this kingdom thing, you know. <laughs> Do the weeds overtake the wheat so that the, the church is just this anemic, pathetic thing hanging on for, for dear life, just twiddling their thumbs? Oh, Jesus, now would be a good time to return so that your kingdom can come because God knows it's not coming now. Is that, what, is that what it is? No, both the world and the church mature in their respective righteousness and wickedness. And then at the end of the age, Jesus returns and puts people into their categories. Both the, as the world gets darker and darker, I'm not offended by that. Uh, I, I have skin in the game. I have to live and buy things and have a mortgage and stuff. But I'm not threatened by that. God's plan for the church isn't going to stop. It will grow brighter and brighter and brighter, all the more better against a black velvet backdrop of an endarkened world. So back to the narrative. I think it's good that we, that we um, care about society. We should want the absolute best for society, we're told, so that the church has a chance to do its work in a quiet and effective manner. But the kingdom of God cannot be reduced to mere moralism. And this brings me to what I want to spend the rest of our time on. The kingdom of God is in the spirit. What is the kingdom of God? Well, as it's been, just as review, it's the reign of God. It's been variously defined in history as something we're just waiting for but isn't here now, as something that the church should be enforcing upon society now, or as something that is merely ethical and moral and not supernatural. And I think all of those have error in them. Let's turn, I think, as a base text, perhaps um, Romans 14. And I'll just read a, a brief portion of that. Romans 14. Paul is, and in verse 17 is where we'll begin. What's happening in the church is there's a, a, a group of Jewish Christians at the Church of Rome who are convinced that it is best for them to keep the old covenant, some of the old covenant rituals, Paul is all right with that as long as they do not believe that that gives them any sort of benefit with God. 
but as a matter of cultural heritage, that's fine. And some of them aren't eating or drinking certain things. But if they're putting it upon others that they shouldn't be eating or drinking certain things because they have this personal conscience issue, Paul's saying, no, no, each person, Paul essentially, this whole chapter is, can't we all just get along? Like, we have to agree on absolute morality, but in terms of what each person's conscience has to do with non-clear issues, he says, just leave each other alone, for God's sake. Literally, for God's sake, just leave each other alone. And this is the summary of that. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, which means it's not a matter of rule-keeping or morality legally, but of righteousness, peace, and joy, and this is actually the key phrase, in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. You do not get righteousness, peace, and joy by keeping enough rules. You do not, how do you get righteousness, peace, and joy? Righteousness, peace, and joy are the product of the Holy Spirit. They are the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. The kingdom of God is in the Spirit. Okay, let's test out another passage. Take her out for a spin. Let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I don't even need to read it. It's wonderful. Um, now there was a man, John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the things that you're doing unless he, God was with him. And Jesus was like, "Ah, oh, shucks, thanks, man. He answered him and said, truly, truly, in Greek, amen, amen. I, Jesus is the only one that gets to amen himself twice before he even talks. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born and my NASB, God bless it, says again, um, a little tricky thing here. The word again, anothen in Greek, can mean again, or it can mean from above. Why? I don't know. I didn't invent Greek. It's just what the word can mean. Uh, so, and context determines whether the word means again or from above. I would suggest that Jesus is saying, you have to be born from above. And Nicodemus misunderstands it to mean, again? Had I crawl up into my mom's uterus again? Okay, and this is a constant theme in John's gospel, people misunderstanding Jesus. Okay, so you must be born, I'll amend the text, uh, the translation, anyway. Uh, you must be born from above, or you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? <laughs> and Jesus answered him, amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is, now he clarifies, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The reign of God. You know, it's not even an option for anyone just to up and say today, I think I'm going to submit to God's reign. And it's not true that you're just automatically a part of God's kingdom, because I don't know, you want to be. Something radical has to happen. You have to be born by the Holy Spirit, birthed again. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Look what Nicodemus says. How can these things be? And Jesus' answer to him is very interesting to me because it's in the Bible and it better be interesting. And Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? He's being a little cheeky because Nicodemus said, we know you are a teacher of Israel. And Jesus says, oh, Dr. Reverend Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Jesus rebukes him for not understanding that someone had to be born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So the question begs to be asked, is Jesus just being unreasonable and mean? Like, I feel kind of bad for Nicodemus. Like, I don't know if I would have figured that out on my own. But Jesus thinks he should know. Why? Because Jesus this whole time has been playing with a passage that Nicodemus should know. It's Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel the prophet is told this. There's a future day when I'm going to cleanse Israel. I'm going to gather them back into the land from their captivity. I'm going to cleanse them as with water. And then I'm going to give them a new spirit. They're going to be made new. And not, wait, there's more. They're going to be cleansed. They're going to be made new in their spirit. And I will even put my own spirit into them. And and Ezekiel's like, oh my gosh. Because Ezekiel has personally experienced that. Rewind a little bit to Ezekiel chapter 1. He's just minding his own business, moping around by a river. And God's, a vision of God comes to him. And God is being carried on this huge chariot, carried by these, these weird, freaky creatures. They have four wings and four faces, and they're made out of four different animals. Um, you, you know now why, that when people see an angel, the angel has to say, fear not, because they're like lion, eagle, ox, man, covered in eyeballs, multiple wings. Don't fear anything. You know, <laughs> it's like, ah. And he sees he's coming, and, you know, he's like amazed. And, and then he sees beside each creature is this big wheel, and the wheel is intersecting a wheel so that, so that it's a four-wheel vehicle. Right? So there's these wheels, and Yahweh's just, just bouncing along the terrain of Babylon. And he's like, get in, loser, to Ezekiel. And, um, and, and, and Ezekiel is told by God, now look at, look at this. Do you see the living creatures? In an instant, they go from here to there, like lightning, right? And Ezekiel's like, right. Now look at the wheels beneath them. Oh, yeah, these wheels, those are crazy wheels. Are those eyeballs on those wheels? Yeah, they're eyeballs. Those wheels are blinking at you. Wheels shouldn't be alive. And he's like, just, just flow with it, Ezekiel. He says, did you notice that wherever the living creature went, the corresponding wheel went? Why is that, Ezekiel? And he's like, you tell me? He says, because the spirit of the living creature is in the wheel. When the spirit of the living creature is in the dead wheel, what happens? A dead thing becomes alive, and the thing goes wherever the creature goes. So if the spirit, you get it, Ezekiel? I think I get it. This is a lot for me to take in, honestly. Okay, but just just to rehearse. Living creature, 
When the spirit of the living creature is in the dead wheel, the wheel becomes alive and goes wherever the creature goes. Got it? I think I got it. Okay. And then God does something crazy. He breathes into Ezekiel his spirit. And Ezekiel stands to his feet. And he says, I was actually talking about what I want to do with you. If the spirit of the living creature is in the wheel, so that what is dead comes to life and goes wherever the creature goes, what would it mean if I put my spirit in you? It means you would be brought to life and you would go wherever I send you. You would say whatever I said to you. And so Ezekiel, fast forward again to this, this prophecy in 36. He, sees, he hears God say, there's coming a day when I'm going to gather all of Israel and I'm going, to give, I'm going to make them alive by the Spirit. I'm going to cleanse them with water, make them alive in the Spirit, and put my Spirit in them. And Ezekiel says, the thing that I got to experience is going to be the experience of all of God's people? Yes. Do you, want a, do you want a word picture for it? Yeah. Okay, let's go out to this field. There's a big valley of dry bones. And he says, prophesy to the bones. And the bones begin to rattle and come together. And they're all just kind of laying there on the ground. And then he says, prophesy to the, to the organs. All right. Uh, livers start coming into the skeletons and then they start to like enflesh themselves. Skin! It's like they become enskinned, if that's a word. And they're just a bunch of dead corpses lying on the ground there. They're just all dead there. And then he says, now, they've come back to life. That's like Israel coming back to the land. They're still dead in their sin though. And that's God's interpretation. Them coming out of their graves is like Israel coming out of Babylon back into the land of Israel. But they're still dead until a son of man prophesies to the spirit and the spirit enters them and they stand to their feet, a vast army. What Ezekiel had in chapter 1 gets experienced by all of God's people in chapter uh, 37. And so back to Nicodemus. Nicodemus! I'm telling you, you must be born of the Spirit. You must be born from above. Otherwise, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You'll hear the sound of the Spirit blowing wherever it goes. And if you get born again by the Spirit, you'll just be going wherever the Spirit goes. And you should know this because you should know Ezekiel, the teacher of Israel. Now, what do I want to point out about this? I guess the stuff I just pointed out. But the, the, the headline is this. The kingdom of God does not advance unless someone is born again of the Spirit. We need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ, made new, like literally born anew in our spirit, and filled with God's Spirit, and become Spirit-born people. Become people that wherever the Spirit goes, we go. You hear, that's, what, that's what Jesus says. You hear the sound of the Spirit rushing to and fro. That is how everyone who's born of the Spirit is. They go wherever the Spirit goes. This is integral to understanding what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God does not advance by our good deeds. The kingdom of God, and I, I hope not to offend anyone, I just want to clarify things. The kingdom of God does not advance by being a good Christian and having a good Christian business. 
a good Christian should be so transformed by the kingdom of God that the kingdom's effects should be seen in his business or her business. And that business should end up bringing profit to the kingdom of God through the church and all the good effects with it. But the kingdom ever only takes an inch when a soul is born from above and enters the kingdom of God. You will not see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. If you're a good musician, if you're one of the very few good Christian entertainers out there, your good Christian music is not going to advance the kingdom of God until souls are born from above. I don't want to demean our work. All of our work is sacred work because it's done unto God and it brings glory to him. And it's sort of a preparatio regum, perhaps, a preparation for the kingdom. But the gospel is what produces the kingdom. We must not, we must not, we must not mistake the effects of a thing for the essence of a thing. We do this with the gospel all the time. We say, come to Jesus. He's going to heal your anxiety. He's going to heal your depression. He's going to give you lots of money. He's going to prosper you. I think probably someone who comes to Jesus will have a better go with their anxiety and depression. And God does do healings. And I believe in prosperity. I don't like putting the word gospel right behind it, but I believe in prosperity. But do you see the danger of confusing the effects of the thing for the thing itself? Then you could have a bunch of people inviting Jesus into their heart and knowing nothing about there being sin, a sinner who's, who offends God. Not, know nothing about not being able to do anything to make themselves right with God. Not knowing anything about how Jesus died for their sins and took the punishment upon himself. Not knowing anything about the fact that they must repent of their sins and put their trust totally in Jesus. And not knowing anything about the fact that they will be born and made new and given a new identity so they can't go on rambling about their, their old self-made identity. It's just, I'm new now. And they are filled with not knowing anything about those things. And they could respond to a gospel and not be saved. Like, we could swap the effects of a thing for the thing itself and lose everything. We do the same with the kingdom by, by focusing on the overflow of the kingdom being all these good things. We could miss the main thing. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. And it, and it, only, it only expands quantitatively when a soul surrenders to him and is born from above. And it only extends qualitatively when I surrender more of my heart to him. Let's go to uh, one more passage, Isaiah chapter 9. This is a Christmas passage ordinarily. It talks about Jesus. And it says, a child will be born to us, verse 6. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Um, that refers to a custom where a, uh, someone would be given a large key uh, if they were a steward over the king's house. And it was like a symbol of their authority. Uh, keys weren't small back then because it wasn't our modern era. They were big, large iron things. So they had to be carried around someone's shoulder it was sort of a badge, but it was also a real key that would open any door. And he says, this son who's going to come and reign, this boy that will be born to us, he will have the government on his shoulders. He will have the key of David, so to speak. He will have access to everything. 
And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Listen, there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That is something that I was convicted of years ago by getting really excited about. Yes, there's going to be no end to the kingdom of God. God, establish your kingdom on the earth. God, um, overthrow corruption. God, um, move in this world. God, extend your kingdom. Let people be saved. And I was excited about the kingdoms of God never ending. Let the reign of Jesus just go and go and go and go. And then the Holy Spirit just dropped into my mind this idea. Are you letting the kingdom of God never stop increasing in here? If the, if the Lord, if the king of the kingdom were to walk through the, the, the hall of your heart, having the key on his shoulder, having been granted technical access to everything, would you be fine with him saying, and that door I'm going to use the key on, and that door I'm going to use the key on, because he will never stop. He will never stop. He will take and take and take and take and take and take. But he gives, he gives, he gives, he gives. But if I'm going to get excited about the expansion of the kingdom out there, I'd better start by being excited about the expansion of the kingdom in here. I imagine there are still things in my heart that have yet to be surrendered to him. Are there things in your heart that have yet to be surrendered to him? Can you hear his footsteps down the hall even now? Can you see his keys? Can you hear his keys jangling as he rattles it in the door even now? He has all authority. There will be no end to the increase of his government. And if you're in his kingdom, that simply means you've submitted to his reign. And when we all do that, say, yes, you do reign, King Jesus. We become real candidates to be agents of his kingdom, to be used by him, to be cleansed by him, to be empowered by him. The kingdom of God is in the spirit. It comes through the spirit. It advances by the spirit. All of our efforts are pitily nonsense when the spirit shows up. Jesus said, why are you asking me about when the kingdom is going to come? You should just wait and receive the Holy Spirit and he'll make you witnesses. That's what your focus should be, walking in the power of the Spirit. Can you stand with me? I want to pray. I do want to get excited about imagining what it would look like if the reign of God in our day, in our nation, in our city advanced. But I want to do so with the sober reminder of Scripture that that is not going to be a structural societal thing. That is a thing of the heart. And that is, a, that is a work that is, that is brought by the Spirit. And that is a work that starts in us. It's already started in us. The kingdom is already here because the king reigns in our hearts. What I want to invite us to do, everyone would lift your hands with me as a, as a, as a biblical sign of surrender, as if you're offering yourself as a sacrifice to God, is what we're told lifting hands means. And we say, and you can just pray in your own words and kind of and agree with what I'm saying as, as we say it. God, we submit to you. We surrender to the kingship of Jesus. We cry from within our hearts, even before we imagine it out there. 
we cry, let your kingdom come, let your will be done in here as it is in heaven. We cry, let the kingdom of God never stop increasing in me. If I want his peace to see no end, I need his government to see no end. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I surrender to his government and therefore I expect the peace will see no end either. That at every part where someone in this moment is worried about the enemy has them all bothered about what would happen if they actually surrendered that to God. Let me say and let me prophesy where the government of God comes, the peace of God comes. He will bring life and peace and joy. The kingdom of God is not legalism. It is not you doing it on your own. It is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We invite you, Holy Spirit, into our hearts. We invite you. We invite you. You stand at the door and knock and we say, come in. Reign in us. Reign in our lives. Reign in this church. And through us, let us be a city set on a hill which cannot be shaken. Let us be a light in the middle of the darkness. Let us be a beacon of the kingdom in a dark and increasingly dark world. Let us bring forth the gospel, not all of our uh, highfalutin ideas of how we're going to bring God's reign to bear. We know how it's brought to bear. The gospel and through the power of the spirit. But do it in us first so that it would overflow into the streets. Revive us, Lord, and we will call on your name. Jesus. Jesus.